Welcome back to the HRW Shift podcast. This is podcast number 26 on choice overload, which explains that more is not always better and that a high number of choices can be overwhelming. I'm Alexandra Petrake and today I'm joined by Tony Jiang, one of our newest behavioral science analysts working from our New York office. Tony, I'd like to welcome you on the podcast and to ask you whether you can remember any situations when you've encountered choice overload. Yeah, so when I started working at HRW, one of the first things that I had to do was to pick an insurance option for my health insurance. And there was so many options for which health insurance to pick, maybe eight or so. And there was no real definition for why certain health insurance differs from another in very layman's terms. It was just kind of a table that showed this is how much deductible it is. This is how much you'll pay per month, that kind of thing. But there was no no real explanations on, you know, which one might be best for me considering my age, my gender, where I live. And so that was an example of choice overload because um, I really didn't know which one to pick and I might have picked unsatisfactory option given, you know, my age, demographics, etc. I guess we'll find out at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For me, I realized there's a bit too much choice when looking at the chocolate aisle in a supermarket. I wasn't even interested in buying chocolate. I was just like all of a sudden overwhelmed with the amount of types of chocolate they were there to choose from. I think it was over 50 types. And I wasn't sure, you know, how to organize that amount of choice. Do I go buy brands? Do I go buy things, you know, that I've been exposed to, that I've seen other people use? It was a bit overwhelming. And we see this, you know, every day in our everyday life. This affects every decision we make. Food we choose, clothing to insurance, like you said, maybe even treatment. I know you did some work on this. You did a meta-analysis on the topic of choice overload, right? Would you like to tell us more about it? Yes. Back in my undergrad, I was very interested in this topic and I wrote about it for my thesis. And so it's really interesting because I studied economics back in my undergrad. And from an economic point of view, more choice is always better because basically consumers can just ignore the options that they don't want. And I mean, this is kind of the colloquial way of thinking. Even today, a lot of companies, they think providing more options for consumers must be better because consumers will be able to pick and choose which one is best for them and ignore which ones don't work for them. But in this research of choice overload, we find that this is not always the case, right? It's not always the case that more choice is often better because a lot of the time people get kind of caught up in all the different options, all the different uh, scenarios for what they could have had with all this choice they might prefer not to make a decision, or they might make a decision based on very instinctive decision-making processes, which can lead to inferior or unsatisfactory decisions, much like the insurance one I talked about before. No idea whether or not it was a good decision or not for me. We'll see, I guess. What you were just saying and your research reminds me of an article I was reading from Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. They also did a meta-analysis and looked at factors that could predict when choice overload occurred. And they identified four key such factors that contribute to choice overload. The first factor they identified was choice set complexity. And this factor looks at how the options that we have to choose from are organized. Is one option more salient than another or than all the other ones, does it stand out to help customers choose it? Or is everything very complex but organized in a simple way? For example, if there are, let's say, 50 types of health insurance, are they all being measured and compared against by one key metric? 
or are there different types of attributes to look for for each of them making the choice even more complex? The second element identified in the study is called decision task difficulty. So simply put, is a decision difficult to take? This can also depend on the time that we have to take such a decision. Some decisions have to be taken quickly. For example, if I go to buy my lunch from the shop, others need more time. And if you have very little time for important decisions, for example, maybe you, Tony, didn't have much time when choosing your health insurance, then that can lead to choice overload because you had to choose between lots of different providers and think about how that decision affected your future in a short period of time. Another factor identified in the meta-analysis was preference uncertainty. And this defines how familiar we are with what we want. To keep the health insurance example in mind, are you looking for an insurance where you have to pay a, pay a low premium? That might make it easier for you to define your priorities and to navigate the sea of choice. However, if you're not sure what you want from your health insurance, it might make it more complex to navigate the choices, which are already, which already can be overwhelming because there are quite a few of them. And the fourth attribute identified as feeding into choice overload was decision goal. So what is our ultimate goal with the decisions that we need to make? Are we interested in considering all the choices available to us, weighing them carefully? Or is our goal to just get some information about what's out there? what our options are. For example, if you were thinking of moving to a different area of New York and looking for a different apartment, but you didn't need or want to move right now, you might just be shopping around a bit, just trying to figure out your options, looking for lots of different choices just to get some information to maybe act on in a few months. If that were your goal, then there wouldn't be that much choice overload. The overwhelm stemming from choice overload wouldn't be felt to a very high extent. On the other hand, however, if you had a time limit on your decision, you really needed to move right now or very soon and you needed to consider location and budget and everything else that comes with moving to a new place, then yeah, choice overload might just come through the roof for you. Yeah, so when we think about those anticipations for choice overload, you can see how impactful they can be in consumer decision making and the implications of, of these are massive for businesses for government policy, because if you think about it, let's say a consumer has preference uncertainty, they don't know what choice they want, and they might experience choice overload. And then when they experience choice overload, they're likely to fall prey to, for example, heuristics to make their decisions, with heuristics being kind of rules of thumb or impulsive ways of thinking to make a decision. And this can lead to unsatisfactory choices on the part of the consumer. If you think about it for, for example, very big decisions um, such as, you know, insurance, such as choosing your education, this can lead to severe consequences for the consumer as well. So, yeah, this topic has a lot of implications, a lot of talking points in many areas. And, yeah, it's very unique and very wide reaching field. Yes, exactly. That can lead to cognitive load. So our brain energy, our capacity to think and make decisions is already limited and it gets depleted the more decisions we have to make. And as we go through our day, as we maybe run out of time or we're under pressure to make decisions. And this is exactly when we are likelier to fall back on those heuristics. And speaking of falling back on heuristics, let's take the example of choosing a drug. One heuristic that consumers might fall back on is the familiarity heuristic. So they might, when they have a lot of options to choose from, they might choose a drug that they're familiar with 
something that perhaps they've seen their family use over the years to simplify the choice for them. And of course, people react differently to those things. Some might want to take their time to think of all the possible choices, to consider them carefully, to make what to them would be the best choice for themselves. And this can lead to cognitive load that we talked about earlier. For some people, the overwhelm stemming from choice overload could lead them to satisfies, which is to say that it might make do with an all right, okay option that they're currently using rather than pushing themselves to go for an option that might be the best for them. So as long as those people are not actively dissatisfied with the options they have, they will just make do with those. It's similar to the fight, flight or freeze response, actually. Some of us might freeze and not be able to make any choices, as you foreshadowed earlier, Tony. It's also called choice paradox because it is, like you said, in behavioral economics, more should be technically is considered better having more to choose from. And this is why it's, you know, it's a choice paradox because we do have more to choose from, but actually we're not. It doesn't make us happier and it doesn't make it easier for us to choose. And we know that the now famous JAM study done by Dr. Shina Yangar and Mark Lepper. Yeah, that's a really famous one. And that really inspired all of the literature behind choice overload. That was one of the pioneering studies in this field. They went into a grocery store, these researchers, and they set up a table. And on one day, they set up the table with six jams. And on the other day, they set up the table with 24 jams. And they wanted to see whether or not, first of all, whether or not there is the illusion of choice. So that is whether or not people are more attracted to more choice over less choice. And the second thing they wanted to test was whether or not there was choice overload. So whether or not more people actually bought the jams when there was less choice and less people bought the jams when there was more choice. And uh, what they found was exactly their hypotheses were correct, where for the table where they had six jams, 40% of the people that walked past uh, the table, they stopped to look at the jams. Whereas on the table with 24 jams, 60% of the people that walk past the table stop. So, you know, that shows the illusion of choice. We like having to choose between larger assortment sizes. We like having that kind of more choice. 60% stopping there is great. But then how many people actually bought the jam? Well, that's a bit different story. From the table with 24 jams, only 3% of the people that stopped there bought it. Whereas at the table with six jams, 30% of the people that stopped by bought it. So this just shows choice overload, right? When they people, you know, love having choice, they love having a lot of options to choose from, choosing their favorite thing. But then when it actually comes to deciding, having less choice is often better because there are less things to compare between. You mentioned before, our brains are very finite cognitively. We can only evaluate so many things at so many times. There's only so much processing power that our brain has. And so, you know, having to evaluate between 24 jams is a lot more difficult and cognitively taxing than having to evaluate between six. Yes, absolutely. And it can help us decide where to direct that cognitive power. So if you want potential customers to gain an in-depth understanding of a range of products, of drugs or healthcare options, then perhaps presenting those drugs, having a, having a wide range of those products and presenting them to the customers is a good idea to increase their awareness because, as you said, in, in the JAM study, more people did stop when there were more JAMs to have a look at. So they did gain an understanding and experienced a wider variety of JAMs. And as a company, you do have options of making the choice easier for your customer if the offering is fast. For example, by grouping the offering into certain categories based on product attributes or based on customer segments. However, if your aim is to increase sales, 
a reduced offering is better for the customer or find a way to help your customer make a choice. Yeah, I think that's precisely it, basically. So we don't want to be reducing the number of options because, you know, consumers, people, we intuitively love having a lot of choices to choose from. But the idea is kind of more guiding people towards the best choice for them or the right choice for them. And, you know, a lot of nudge theory is about that, right? Creating the choice architecture to make better decisions or the decision that is right for you. You know, there's a role for, for example, default, where, you know, there's a default option and people have to select outside the default if they want to choose something else. Defaults are shown to be really powerful um, because they're kind of seen as recommendations for which choice you should pick. And this can be, for example, something like organ donations, right? You you want people to be donating their organs if they get in a car accident because there's so much social benefit there, but a lot of people adverse against it. So, you know, having a default there can reduce these effects. Or for example, insurance, as you said before, segmenting people based on their demographics. So one thing I was thinking of in terms of choice architecture and helping customers choose between options when lots of options are available is to kind of make it the default, like you say, make one drug, for example, the default or one healthcare plan or one drug subscription and so on. And then for anything else that's from the same range, but slightly different, just pick key attributes in which they differ and just line them up next to each other, next to the one that's kind of your default, that's, you know, your poster poster product. For example, let's say it's about maybe formulation. So, you know, you present a drug that comes in couplet form, and then you show the same one, but it's tablet. And you just made that very, very visible, very salient, very obvious. So you just make it easier for them, because otherwise they might all be the same. You know, we've seen this when we go and buy certain over-the-counter drugs where the options are very similar in terms of efficacy, in terms of safety. Mm-hmm. And there are just yeah. little things that are different. The next one maybe is um, is effervescent, so you need to dissolve it and just make those things really pop up in a, in, in a brochure or, you know, in a poster. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really good example because... These kind of comparison tables, um, they're often very useful for helping people compare and uh, choose the right option for them. Because otherwise, if consumers are just being left to themselves to evaluate all the different pieces of information that are going around, they're likely to fall victim to choice overload. We were talking earlier about personalizing as well, right? When you have the same range of drugs, of products, but you market them to different segments of the population. So helping reduce choice overload by grouping those options can help alleviate some of that pressure on the customer and may enable them to make the decision to actually buy that product. Yeah, it's important to know ultimately that, you know, these are all physical things that happen in our brain. So when we have to make a decision, you have to use the brain region that's responsible for decision making and we have to use our brain region responsible for, for figuring out what value we're getting out of that decision. And so when there's a little bit of choice, things are a bit varied, then we think, okay, there's a higher chance that we'll be getting more value if we you know shop around a little bit and compare options. But when there are way too many choices, that then those two is those two brain regions that get a bit overwhelmed. You know, it feels that do we get that much value if we shop around for 30 options instead of four or five? And I was reading a paper on choice by Paul Bates and Glenn Robert, in which they look at patients' reactions and decision-making in the face of being offered multiple choices for a hospital. And choosing to stay with a certain hospital that's perhaps local, that's more convenient, maybe they found that maybe the ways of dealing with choice overload, even though a hospital might be better, 
patients do exactly the same thing. They figure out what attributes help them navigate choice overload. And they figure out that the attributes that they were using was convenience. You know, they had opportunities to choose from lots of different hospitals for surgery, for various treatment. And they found that lots of patients stayed with the local hospital. And they chose that based on the fact that that was reducing waiting time for them. So this is an example in which patients might deal with choice overload. And some people deal with it that way. They pick one attribute or a couple of attributes that can help them decide, you know, what value do I get? Is it, like we said, for your health insurance conundrum, you know, is it premium itself? Mm-hmm. In this case, for patients, it was a practical aspect. Yeah, that's definitely one way people deal with it. You know, like they use heuristics. So in this case, it's very much focusing effect, right? They're focusing on one key attribute to make their decision based off, even though, you know, that one key attribute might not be the most important attribute for their decision, right? You would presume that the decision that is probably most important if you have to go to the hospital is effective treatment. But it seems like convenience is that uh, attribute that people are using. So that's one way that people often cope with choice overload. And another one that I thought of while you were talking there was familiarity heuristic, right? We typically choose options that we're more familiar with. We don't like kind of the uncertainty or the risk of an unknown option. And so, yeah, while you're talking there, that that could be another heuristic um, that patients were using when deciding what hospital they would choose from, right? Because they're choosing the ones that they're used to, that they're accustomed to. Yes, of course. And this shows a key problem there that the authors of the initial study also touched on in their paper. is that more choice for this patient is not necessarily good, not only because of the number of choices, but also because not all the patients will have the means to access the information that will help them navigate that choice. How are they to know which hospital is better? They may not have the time, they may not have access to internet, or just a general knowledge of what to look for in the therapy area that they need. And here I would like to remind our audiences of a previous podcast that's linked to this idea of helping patients navigate choices, podcast number 25 on patient empowerment, where we discuss that, in short, presenting patients with a lot of unexplained choices and not providing the support needed for them to navigate those choices leads actually to patient disempowerment. And it's not helpful for the patient to have more choices if they can't make sense of them and can't access the help they need to make the right choice. And this may impact those from lower socioeconomic groups disproportionately as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's why the choice architecture, as we were talking about before, is so important, right? Uh, Helping people come to optimal decision by, for example, default or providing small descriptions of, you know, what each choice is or comparison tables, personalization, all of these things. They're all very important to reduce people making suboptimal choices or, you know, making no choice. Because I think just using this example that we were talking about before with choosing hospitals, you know, the worst possible scenario would be actually not going to the hospital, right? Not getting treated for their condition. But as we know with choice overload, a lot of the time indecision is what was a way that people cope with choice overload. And that's what we saw in the JAM study, right? The JAM studies where people preferred not to make an option when there were 24 JAMs, but they preferred to make a buy when there are six JAMs. And so similar thing here with the hospitals, indecision would probably be the worst possible outcome here. Exactly, yeah. And think of uh, healthcare professionals, they might also be affected by choice overload because you think, you know, on top of their very busy work days, they may have high patient loads. They're bombarded with information for a lot of treatments for the therapy area they operate in that they need to learn, they need to know, they need to be able to relate to the patient to make an informed decision of this. So you can see how easily a lot of choice would overwhelm them. So in this case, of course, you'd be 
excellent to give them a helping hand by making things, like I said, by making things salient, making things stand out, making certain treatments or treatment attributes stand out from the rest or offering them, offering them simple ways to compare be, uh, between treatments. So kind of it's called a facilitated choice, you know, so there's this there's lots of choice you can do, but I'm here to help you navigate through it and make it easy and streamlined for you to navigate so that ultimately you can make an informed choice without experiencing all those negative emotions that we experience when you're overwhelmed by choice, so, you know, stress, anxiety, and so on. I think the tricky thing for healthcare specifically is that a lot of the time there is no real preference and certainty for a lot of these professionals because, you know, the doctors, they're experts, right? They kind of have an idea of what's better and what's worse. And so often they do have a preferred choice and they might not be as affected by choice overload when selecting a drug. Obviously, this will still happen if the conditions are right. It's a bit different from, for example, a patient choosing between which drug they prefer or, you know, going to the pharmacy and selecting which, I don't know, multivitamin they would want. Because yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They, they're less informed, right? They, they haven't gone to med school for like six years to study. Yeah, it's a bit different. Still very yeah. applicable. Let's say there's a, a therapy area with lots and lots of brands competing from a slice of the market share. Mm-hmm. That's where maybe if the treatments are fairly similar or they're comparable, at least that if they're comparable in terms of efficacy or and safety, then that's where choice overload might appear for a healthcare professional. That's when we see, we do see healthcare professionals fall back onto heuristics, like you said, like familiarity, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's where for a given brand, we'd, we'd recommend keeping in mind to make their product salient in brochures, in advertising, of course. Yeah. Of course, it's different for healthcare professionals, I hope, than for uh, your regular consumer, which may be affected by analysis paralysis. So, you know, there's too much choice. So for mm-hmm. a consumer, you may feel like any decision is the wrong one. We've right. all come back home after buying something and maybe thought, oh, I should have looked around a bit more. I should have bought maybe this thing. The thing I got is not perfect, but neither was the other thing and so on. But our take home message would say it's that, yes, too much, having too much choice, having too much information can be a burden. And to be mindful of that and mindful how we organize that information and facilitate those choices to make it easier for customers to navigate complex choices. Yeah, exactly. I would completely agree with that take home message where, you know, I don't think the problem is having too many choices. Choice is a good thing. But ultimately, the main thing is to help people, guide people to make the right choices, make it easier for people to make the right choice. Yeah. And just one last uh, bit of nugget that I remembered from um, uh, the Behavior Economics podcast, having a lot or a little choice can have its benefits in different ways. So they suggested that with products where people tend to not know much about, a lot of choice can be helpful because if they don't if, if they don't know much about a certain area, then that can help them find something they like, kind of like, you know, have had something personalizable that feels that fits their needs. But in areas where people are very knowledgeable about, then less choice would be better because they already have an idea of what they're going for, what they need, you know, they have experience. So less choice would help them make a purchase. Yeah, there's a really fascinating book called The Paradox of Choice written by an expert in this field called Professor Barry Schwartz. 
In his book, he argues that there's so much choice in the world today that it's led to people being unhappier than ever. One key piece of evidence for this that he says is, you know, suicide rates are higher than ever nowadays. And and he says part of this is because of choice overload. Too many choices leading to unsatisfactory options. Because if you think about it today, in today's society, we have so many choices. What career we want to take, who we're going to marry, the partner we take up, you know, and everyday decisions like what we eat. Uh, what we drink, what we do on the weekend, our hobbies, for example. And there's so many choices in our society today that we often feel like we made the wrong ones or we feel regretful of the choices we made and regret that we didn't make a different choice in the past. And this has had led to society being unhappier than ever. And if you think about historically in the past, a hundred years ago or so, there was not as much social mobility, right? You didn't have so much choice for what career you wanted to take. If you were born into a family of bakers or whatever, you're likely to be a baker. There was not so much choice in who you could marry. Your family usually dictated who you're going to marry, food choices, what you do on the weekends. There wasn't that much choice in that either, right? People were a lot poorer. In our society, you know, this stuff is all a given. You have so much choice for what you want to do in your life. And uh, with more choice comes more regrets about what could have been. Yes. And what you're saying reminds me of um, the way I <laughs> used to think about my hobbies. Like many others, I have quite a few different things that I enjoy doing. And when it comes to looking at hobbies, I've managed to nourish maybe across a week or across a month. Looking back, it's easy to look and say, I haven't done this. I haven't done that. I haven't practiced this hobby for a while. And in order to save myself that potential regret and the overwhelm when it comes to choosing, well, which hobby do I get to practice today? I just group them all under a category. And it doesn't matter now, whichever one I pick out and practice and nourish, then I'm happy. It doesn't matter if I stick to one for a longer period or if I do a little bit from time to time. Right. Yeah. I mean, at least you've made a start on those hobbies, right? There are tons of yeah. hobbies that I wish I've done. Like, I wish I learned to play the piano and that could have been a choice if I made it when I was younger out of all the instruments. If I had made that choice when I was younger, yeah, I could yeah. be, you know, I could be a grandmaster yeah, or something yeah. right now. But well, I've got right. a, I've got a keyboard almost a year ago, and it's uh, sitting nicely in my room. <laughs> <laughs> it's not collecting dust because I dust it every now and then, but I don't use it. <laughs> At least you have um, the choice to play it if you want. Yes, yes, the choice is there, and I don't feel unhappy about not, you know, not being proficient at piano mm -hmm. playing because I get to do other things. Right. And on that positive note, thank you everyone for listening to us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on shift at hrwhealthcare.com by email, or you can find us on Twitter at hrwshift. Take a moment in your days now to figure out where you may be experiencing choice overloads, or if you are experiencing choice overload, maybe when you're purchasing your meal or when you're choosing a painkiller, take a moment to try and figure out ways to simplify that choice overload for you and to make it more straightforward for yourself to choose. For now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye and goodbye from Tony. Bye.